Is it all over? After the nightmare we've lived through, that might seem like a pretty presumptuous question to start a show with, but the data in the UK at least is looking really, really positive. We've started to reopen society. Cases of COVID-19 are not going up. So yes, the overall story of COVID-19 at the moment, not a positive one. You look around the world, appalling. That's because we're not distributing vaccines well enough. But if you look at this country, and if we get vaccines everywhere, this will be the situation for, for everyone. It looks like the vaccines may be liberating us from COVID-19. That's the topic we'll be discussing for the first part of tonight's show. I'm joined, of course, by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. Thank you so much for having me on Friday. We are going to be looking at the the run-up to the local election. So the issues that Labour are running on to, to try and, um, I suppose, get some get some momentum back in the run-up to those elections. Um, I'll also be speaking to Ross Greer, MSP for the Greens, about the most exciting elections, um, which are happening next week for the Scottish Parliament. And we're going to cover the latest in the ongoing outrage, which is the revolving door, not between Britain and lobbying, which has been what's dominated the news for, I suppose, the past few weeks, but the revolving door, much less discussed, probably because it involves journalists, between politics and the media. First story. After schools reopened in March and after shops and outdoor hospitality reopened earlier this month, there were many concerns, reasonable concerns, that we could see new spikes of COVID-19 across the UK. However, those fears as of yet have not been borne out in the statistics. The Office for National Statistics today released their infection survey, an estimate that one in 1,010 people in England currently have COVID-19. Now, the ONS data is, we've, talk about, we've talked about this a lot, is based on a random and representative sample, so catches both symptomatic and asymptomatic cases. It's considered um, the gold standard. To take you through the other nations of the UK and Wales, um, one in 1,570 people, um, they are estimating currently test positive for COVID-19. In Scotland, it's one in 640, and in Northern Ireland, it's one in 940 people. Now, alongside that data from the ONS, we've also had some positive data from the Zoe COVID app. Um, now, this is the app. Some of you might use it. Um, you can put in any symptoms you have that day, um, and they have been tracking prevalence of, of COVID-19 and also working out what the different symptoms are throughout this whole um, epidemic in, in, in this country. Now, they, at this point in time, currently estimate that only one in 3,000 551 people um, in the UK currently have symptomatic COVID-19. And today, Tim Spector, who's the epidemiologist who runs the app, told Sky that Britain may in fact be past the pandemic period. It looks like at the moment we're past that pandemic uh, period and we're moving into what we call the endemic period, where we get low levels of infection, and occasional outbreaks, but they don't spread to the rest of the population. And the general risk is low. Really, people, particularly if they've been vaccinated, should be much more relaxed uh, and less stressed out. And I know a lot of people are still very worried about coming out of doors or pubs opening on restaurants, etc. But for me, this is a very reassuring picture, and we should be a bit more upbeat about it and focusing on the good news, not just the bad news or the possibility of something bad happening in the future. 
he's saying there's a reassuring picture from the data he's looking at. I think many people will find listening to him speaking there fairly um, reassuring. Um, let's return to the ONS statistics because these are, as I said, considered the, the gold standard, incredibly reliable representative sample, and they've been using the same method for months now. So the data released today, they come out every Friday, and this runs to the 24th of April and shows COVID rates are falling in almost every region of England. I'm just going to show you the English regions. In Yorkshire, in the Humber, that's the only place where it seems like they could possibly be rising, but only very slightly. They might not even be rising. Um, everywhere else, um, it looks as if cases are falling. And you can see prevalence is, is really low in lots of places. Um, so the height is 0.2% in Yorkshire and the Humber. And in the southwest, 0.0% of, of people have COVID-19. Now, presumably that doesn't mean there are literally zero people um, with COVID-19, but it must mean that there are less than 0.05% um, of, of people with COVID-19 because they've rounded down to that. So that's, I mean, obviously, um, it goes without saying, very, very positive. Um, the ONS also give us a breakdown when it comes to age. And again, here you can see it is falling um, in every age group. So there was a big worry that when schools reopened, you'd see um, significant breakouts um, in in schools. Again, reasonable fears. It was these were not silly ideas that this might happen, um, but it doesn't again seem to be borne out in um, the statistics so much. So you can see there, it's, COVID is, is falling among every age group. School years seven to eleven, zero point three percent. Um, in primary school, 0.2% currently have COVID-19. Remember at the peak, um, those age groups were between 2 and 3% of school children testing positive for COVID-19. So again, all looking very positive. So what is going on here? It's been said a lot, absolutely true, that the big drop we saw um, at the start of this year, that was because of the lockdown. That was because we had one of the strictest, longest lockdowns in well, in the whole world, in fact, we had that because we needed it. And we needed it because Boris Johnson twiddled his thumbs for such a long time while COVID was spreading out of control um, at the end of December. But the more recent phenomenon of lockdown starting to loosen and cases not increasing, that seems to be basically um, down to the vaccines. And again, we can show you some more ONS statistics. This is from a different release. This was from Wednesday. Um, and it shows us the levels of antibodies which are currently in the adult population in the nations of the UK. So you can see here the percentage of adults testing positive for COVID antibodies. Um, so if we just look at England there in the top left, you can see that that goes from the 13th of December from around 15%. It's been going up steadily, steadily, steadily. And it is now at 68.3% of adults in England at the date that this was done. I think this is up to the 16th of April had COVID antibodies. So that will actually um, be higher now because obviously the, the vaccine rollout has been continuing a pace. You're looking at a similar situation um, in all the nations of the UK. Now, of course, this is not a time for absolute complacency, even if it is a time for positivity, um, because you can see from that there's still 30% of adults without antibodies and young people uh, aren't, well, children, people who are under 18 aren't included um, in this data. So m we presume, unless they've all had COVID-19, more of them have had COVID-19, but they, they all haven't had COVID-19, we presume antibody levels will be lower among them. And even when it comes to adults, even if you've got 30% of people who haven't, who don't have antibodies, if you imagine, you know, super spreader events where everyone is is from a young age group, say if they open nightclubs tomorrow, you can imagine there being um, some quite 
severe outbreaks because you're putting a lot of people in the same place, not many of them vaccinated. That's why we shouldn't open nightclubs tomorrow. We could quite soon, though, um, be at a situation where almost everyone is vaccinated um, because despite concerns that younger age groups would not want to take the jab, um, again, that's not borne out in the data. Um, let's look at this again from the ONS about positivity when it comes to the vaccine. So this is showing us that among um, all age groups, positivity about taking the vaccine has increased since the start of that vaccine rollout. And it stayed very, very high, even among those young age groups right to the present day. And most positively from this, it doesn't seem like the changing advice with the AstraZeneca vaccine has affected um, in any way um, people's willingness to take the vaccine. Aaron, I want to throw to you. It is all looking pretty rosy, isn't it? Rosy is that the word? Because obviously the, there is a context here sort of internationally, which is terrible. You know, globally, we know that COVID-19 figures are still going up, that there are huge problems in the global south. India in particular, I mean, people are hearing the horror stories. I probably don't need to recount them, which isn't just people dying from COVID-19, but also from a lack of oxygen, formally on the death certificate, it might say COVID-19. But these are eminently preventable deaths. Elsewhere, there have been issues around infrastructure. I, I believe there was a major mishap that happened in a, in a hospital recently. Uh, and so there isn't really the infrastructure at the best of times in a number of places across India. Uh, you're hearing terrible stories from the major cities. So we don't really know what it's like in, say, smaller villages. And that's not just sort of, you know, me just saying that's that that's the kind of high quality reporting you're hearing on the World Service. And they would say, really, we don't have the best of data available yet from what's happening beyond the major cities in India. However, in Britain, and this does have implications to the global south, because I think for Britain and for Israel, not including the occupied territories, what you're seeing is these vaccines work, which is to say, once you go past the critical mass right now, like you say, Michael, I think something like 70% of the UK um, have antibodies. That, of course, will go down if we don't vaccinate people uh, continually. It will go down after people... There's a period after which they loop, stop producing those antibodies once they've had the, the virus. It's not going to stay there permanently. But what it tells us is there are conditions which we can maintain, which will allow us to stay where we are. And there are going to have to be trade-offs. You know, when, when we're saying at the top of the show, is it all over? That doesn't mean we're going to open the nightclubs again. But what it does mean is we can continue to unlock. And I think we're going to have to think about big things over the next six months a year, which we probably can't do. You know, there are probably a bunch of countries we're not going to be able to go to for six months, unless it's hugely pressing. There are probably going to be restrictions in, in some circumstances on internal travel where there's a m major breakout, although the, 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 the statistical likelihood of that, of, of course, diminishes with time, the, you know, the longer the successful vaccination effort happens. So, I mean, it kind of is all over, it seems, famous last words. But in terms of seeing something like what we saw over the Christmas period, I mean, that doesn't seem plausible now. You know, we might get another spike. But again, I don't even see how we'll get another spike, Michael. And, you know, people who've been watching the show regularly know that we've been very sceptical. I think you've been one of the best informed people on COVID in the country. You know, if I have any COVID-related questions, I come to you. And I think even, even you, Michael... With the reopening of schools, with the reopening of, of course, you know, non-essential retail, like I say, there's no uptick whatsoever. You look at the data coming out of Israel, it would suggest that actually we can defeat this, not easily, because of course rolling out a vaccine en masse, tens of millions of people is, is actually an unprecedented effort of collective action globally, but we know what to do. 
Uh, and in a way, maybe, maybe that does bode well for the global south because at least we know now what's replicable in places like India and Brazil uh, and elsewhere. Of course, there will be other countries in the global south with, you know, not the best healthcare infrastructure systems, you know, possible. Uh, so I, I think it is good news because we know it seems we know how to beat this. Now, of course, there may be new variants. Some, some strange stuff may happen, but it seems we know how to beat this. One thing I should clarify, there was actually a bit of an uptick in primary and secondary schools um, after they reopened, but it is now declining, just like it, among all other age groups. So that was probably because of a, a tipping a tipping point and when it came to vaccines. I mean, th th that's the story, essentially. Um, unless you're having huge gatherings of people who are unvaccinated, then it's much harder for the for COVID-19 to travel through the population. We know that these vaccines are very good at suppressing transmission. That was one thing we didn't know at the start of the year. That really changes um, our ability to assume that the vaccines can essentially get us out of this. Again, all of this is to say, let's take this slow because, you know, if we say, oh, everything looks fine, let's completely go back to normal, unknowns can emerge. As you say, we could get new variants which are you know, completely escape the vaccine. At this point in time, it looks like there are um, many variants, in fact, which the vaccine are less effective against, but most of the vaccines are still somewhat effective against them. And we potentially think, again, we need to know a bit more about this. Potentially, all the vaccines are quite good at stopping serious illness with, with the variants. So I, I don't think a, a variant is going to come along which sort of takes us back to square one so as long as we're keeping an eye on this as long as we're being relatively careful it looks like you know we are definitely out of the thick of it and we could probably have quite a pleasant summer for balance this is someone who doesn't think um, the pandemic's over even in europe and north america and this is david Navarro, special envoy for covid19 for the world health organization um he said to sky news and um, that the pandemic is not nearly over so he said, I just want to stress that actually the virus could well surge back into Europe and into North America. It may not cause such widespread suffering because of the increasing number of people who have been immunized. But don't imagine that somehow the pandemic is over in Europe and the US. It's not. Um, now, his main emphasis um, in that interview, understandably because he's from the World Health Organization, is to say that, look, this pandemic on a global level, 100% not over. We would never, ever suggest that it was remotely over, as we've, we, we talked about on, on last Friday's show, in much of the world, the pandemic is worse than it has ever been. But here, I'm not exactly sure why David Nabarro doesn't think it's almost over. I mean, the US has similar vaccination levels to us or or in the UK. I think actually, maybe I'm a bit more positive than than, than him about that. I mean, I, I potentially, from the perspective of the World Health Organization, what they don't want is people to get complacent, especially people in the rich world to get complacent, because their whole point is to say, let's not treat this as over until it's over for everyone. I agree with that ethically, but in terms of the epidemiology of it, you know, it is looking positive here. Aaron, I want to throw to you on that point. Why do you think there is this sort of difference? Do you see the argument that actually we're not out of this? It could all go horribly wrong at some point in time. And so we we should be um, encouraging the government to be, well, I suppose taking a zero COVID strategy would be what, what mm. independent sage and, and people like that are talking about. Do you think there's any argument now for, for going for, for zero COVID or something like that? I think zero COVID should be taken seriously as a strategy for future outbreaks, um, whether it's a new variant of this or whether it's a different virus. The reason why countries in East Asia had zero COVID was because, of course, they had the SARS pandemic at the beginning of the 21st century. 
And so this this approach to pandemics, we will have to use it again because we're going to see more and more of these things because of climate change, because of uh, deforestation, uh, because of global, you know, supply chains uh, and encroaching on, you know, previously, you know, wilderness. So we're going to see much more of these. So I think that debate around zero COVID, I think just our, gen our general pandemic response has to look like that, whether it's a new variant or whether it's a new virus, whether it's a new pathogen, et cetera. I think the reason why somebody would be negative, given what we know, which isn't, you know, a different pathogen, uh, would be effectively a cognitive bias. I mean, that may sound very rich coming from me speaking about a very esteemed scientist, but I think given the experience of the last 12 months, given how terrible everything's been, it's actually very reasonable to be hugely risk averse. Now, it's one thing to be reasonable, it's another thing to be correct or rational, let's say. You know, statistically speaking, you know, the probabilities of what he's talking about, you know, they seem to be quite low. They seem to be quite low. Of course, it could happen. And given, you know, all the, the, the manifest things we didn't, you know, foresee two years ago, what's happened since, you know, a global economic downturn, half a million people have died in the US, more than 200,000 people have died in India, more than half a million people have died in the major European countries. Yeah, of course, that should that should make people very risk averse. So I think what he's saying is explicable, but given the data we're seeing coming out of Israel, coming out now out of the UK, I don't think it's necessarily correct. But again, you know, that may sound strange. We're not medical health professionals, but as journalists, we're here to digest the information. Uh, and like you say, the vaccines, they're not just great at stopping transmission. They're also very, very good at dealing with serious disease regardless of wh which variant you get. You know, we could have a terrible scenario where we have the Brazil variant maybe run wild in the UK, because, of course, that can be deadly to younger people. It's killed many babies, for instance, in Brazil. Of course, those people aren't vaccinated because the variants we've had so far, those are the, the least at risk people. With the, you know, with the Brazilian variant, they would be more at risk. But other than that, I can't really foresee many circumstances where something truly, you know, truly terrible happens, where we, where we have another experience like what we've just gone through. And I think, again, talking about cognitive biases, all of your assumptions are kind of gazumped by an experience like the one we just had, you know? And I think that's that's flattened people's expectations, their capacity for making, you know, rational predictions. And I think this is one example of that. I do tend towards agreeing with you. As I say, I'm going to keep a relatively open mind. I think it's good to have humility on these questions. But for me, it does seem like, you know, these vaccines really are doing the job. Um, I was going to say I'd be happy to prove wrong, but this is one where I really wouldn't be happy to be proved wrong. <laughs> I really hope I'm right on this one. Um, let's look at uh, a couple more chunks, nuggets of information that we got from the ONS this week. These are very interesting. On uh, One of them is on the effects of COVID-19, which will last beyond the pandemic. This is a pretty striking statistic, actually. So the, the, the ONS have looked into um, percentages of people who self-report to having long COVID um, in different parts of the UK. And they've found that people in the most deprived areas of the country are more than 50% more likely um, to have suffered from long COVID. So 2.2% of people in the most deprived areas report suffering from long COVID, 1.4% in the least deprived areas. Long COVID is something which can last a very long time. This could be something that we're, we're living with for, well, I mean, we don't know. We, we could be living with it for, for months because ultimately the vaccine gets rid of it, or we could be living with it for years because it does long-term damage that the vaccine can't, can't handle. So that could be um, something that really compounds um, inequality in this country. You know, an especially striking statistic because one of the risk factors for getting long COVID seems to be if you have no chance to rest 
So one, people in the most deprived areas are more likely to get COVID-19 because of housing situations and because of frontline jobs. Two, if you get COVID-19 and you're in one of the most deprived areas, it's less likely that you are able to rest properly if you catch the virus. If you don't rest when you've got it, you're more likely to get post-viral fatigue. So I think one of those one of those issues where COVID really brings out the striking contrasts um, in, in this country between life chances in, in rich parts of the country and poor parts of the country. One more statistic I'm going to show you um, concerns unemployment and especially and the unequal effect this has had on people based on their age group. So unemployment for recent graduates and 18 to 24 year olds has reached its highest peak in four years. As you can see there, um, 18 to 24 year olds and recent graduates has a, a real jump since before the pandemic. Currently 12% of recent graduates are unemployed and 14% of 18 to 24 year olds. It's been a bit of an uptick in unemployment, but not massive. And presumably this is in large part because, you know, if you're a recent graduate, you were quite unlikely to have been furloughed. So you end up just relying um, on universal credit. Aaron, I want to go to you, I suppose, specifically on this unemployment question. I've been thinking a lot, well, lately, for obvious reasons, because we've seen some of them around the country, whether this summer is going to be one, you know, a real hotbed, actually, of sort of protest and political unrest. And partly because people have been pent up during the pandemic. But one of the big correlations between sort of big protest movements is youth unemployment, isn't it? So this could really translate into quite a fiery um, political dynamic in this country. We've already seen it, Michael. You saw it with the um, the, the anti-Super League protests almost immediately, uh, which which popped up, what now, 10 days ago, whatever it was, you saw outside Chelsea, Peter Cech with the team bus, remonstrating with fans who were blocking it from going into Stamford Bridge. And, you know, we saw in at Chelsea, uh, so in West London, in Arsenal, North London, you know, people were burning American flags. <laughs> so I, I, you look at that, you look at BLM, you look at the, the, the climate stuff, potentially return of the climate strikers, XR. I think there's also a huge space for, you know, obviously continued right wing protest. I think actually a lot of the anti a lot of the anti-vax stuff, we saw a huge anti-vax protest, I think, last weekend. I don't think that's necessarily left or right. I think that's, and also what struck me, I don't know about you, Michael, but that was actually far more mixed in terms of its composition, its age, you know, racial sort of composition and so on, far more mixed than I think people would have anticipated, certainly I would have anticipated. So I think you're looking at just a panoply of protest movements probably emerging over the, over the next six months. And they won't all be good. You won't agree with all of them. You might think some of them are very strange. You might vehemently disagree with some of them. But I think, you know, the people that have to deal with public order in this country, so I'm talking about, you know, the Home Office, the Homes, you know, the Home Secretary, the Metropolitan Police Service, and of course, you know, the, the, the highest levels of government too. I think they are predicting public order of some kind. Could be peaceful protest, could be all the way through to something a lot more antagonistic. Of course, I'm not talking about Northern Ireland. It's a separate situation. But again, I think because of the factors we're talking about here relating to COVID, but then, of course, their own unique political context, too, could get very, you know, could get very antagonistic there as well. So I I, I think we're going to see the most protests we've seen in Britain probably since 2011. 2011, of course, was an incredible year for protest, you know, coming just uh, a year after the coalition government came in. You had March 26th, TUC demo. You had the student movement at the end of 2010. You had, of course, the 2011 August riots. You had just protests constantly popping off. And again, they weren't all from the left. You know, that's when we begin to see the EDL sort of form into a, into a pretty solid street movement. Uh, and you see sort of elements of the far right taking to the streets with the sort of collapse of the BMP 
uh, after 2012-2013. So I think we're going to see lots and lots of protests. But it's important to remember for the left, you know, not all protest is good, um, but they're coming, I think, yeah. It will be a very interesting summer, I think. Let's go to what you guys think. We've talked about, you know, our assessment of what we've got in store when it comes to this epidemic. Um, we also asked you before we went live in our YouTube community what you thought. So we asked you the slightly leading question, but factual. With new ONS data showing COVID-19 case levels 20 times lower than their January peak, are we finally seeing the end of the UK pandemic? That's the question we asked you. Um, 38% said yes, 30% said no, and 32% said don't know. So that's, to be honest, as close to an even split as, as you're probably going to get in a poll like that. So uh, a divided audience. Next Thursday, elections will take place in every region of the UK other than Northern Ireland. In Scotland and Wales, there are elections to their respective national parliaments. In many of England's cities and regions, there are mayoral elections, and there are also council elections in much of England. Um, on top of that, there's a by-election in Hartlepool that's following the resignation of the incumbent Labour MP. Now, in the elections across England, at least, most media attention is focused on how Labour under Starmer will fare, given it will be his first big electoral test. And the other big question is, amid a successful vaccine rollout, um, will the Tories be able to, I suppose, drown out any complaints that people have about Boris Johnson's flat? Now, it's that latter issue, Boris Johnson's flat, that Labour are really trying to um, emphasise in the run-up to those elections. And to that end, this was Angela Rayner speaking to the issue while out campaigning. Well, I think that's a disgusting thing to say, actually, when you won't just say why, who's paid for his flat and why, where this money has come from. The general public need to know that, you know, there's standards and rules in place because of in the 90s, we had cash for questions and people who give you thousands of pounds to do up your flat generally tend to expect something in return. So what's Boris Johnson hiding? Why won't he just tell people where this money came from? The other element of the, the flat story that Labour are running with, as well as where the money came from, is the tastes of Carrie Simons and Boris Johnson and whether it's a bit snobbish. Um, this particularly relates to Carrie Simons telling Tatler um, that the flat they inherited from Theresa May was a John Lewis nightmare. Keir Starmer playing off this and to highlight his more positive attitude towards the department store, um, Starmer has posed um, looking for wallpaper in a John Lewis store. Um, now, the stunt potentially backfired. Um, he was attacked by the right-wing press for it, at least. The Daily Mail went with the jokes on you, Sir Keir. And they say his job is to hold ministers to account. And two days ago, he savaged the PM for leaving meetings to pick wallpaper. So when Labour's leader staged a woeful photo stunt at a John Lewis DIY counter, the response was universal. And then, yeah, the joke's on you, Sir Keir Starmer. Now, the Daily Mail attacking the Labour leader is not particularly surprising. Um, I imagine this visit to John Lewis will have absolutely zero effect whatsoever on how people vote next week, but it's, it's worth pointing out nonetheless. Um, Aaron, I want to go to you on, on this issue. We'll look at pause in a moment. But first of all, do you think this um, issue about the flat is something which Labour are right to sort of really go heavily on? Nobody cares. Nobody cares, Michael. Nobody cares. And I can see the exact same people on Twitter who said that, you know, there was a sudden emergent mass that wanted to cancel Brexit. The exact same people, again, are treating politics like a, a true crime podcast with Sakir Starmer as the protagonist detective. 
that's not what politics is. People don't care. Their lives are far more interesting to them than following politics like a hobby or like something on iTunes or Spotify. They want to know what you're going to do for them. And the last thing government did for them, actually, was roll out one of the most successful vaccination programs in the country. So that count uh, in the world, rather. So that counts for a lot more than wallpaper and John Lewis. And I thought when when Boris Johnson was sort of rebutting this in in, in Prime Minister's questions last week, oh, actually on Wednesday, sorry, and he called it he called it bizarre that this was the focus of Labour's attack. I kind of agreed because you think 120,000 people have died. We've seen a huge economic downturn. Joe Biden has just hosted this, this climate summit where we've seen astonishing, and they're just promises, they're just words, right? But astonishing promises from Japan, from Britain, from Canada, from the US about reducing CO2 emissions. And the leader of the Labour Party is talking about wallpaper from John Lewis. And I think it's kind of ridiculous. And it's the kind of thing that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have done. And it was one of those things, people, Jeremy, people, people nail Jeremy Corbyn for the things he didn't do, which he should have done. He was very right to not touch this stuff. He would have said, it's just not, it's not politics. Like, I don't care. I really don't care about wallpaper. And you know what? Most people don't care about wallpaper. I really couldn't care less. And when you've got people like Laura Koonsberg on sort of, you listen to BBC Sounds, it might be The World at One, it might be PM, it might be Six O'Clock News, and she says, this matters, and here's why. The minute you hear that sentence, you go, this doesn't matter, because literally nobody cares. With Dominic Cummings, yeah, people cared, because you're being told you can't do certain things, and yet this guy at the top of government's done exactly what the rest of you are told you're not allowed to do. It's hypocrisy, right? But the idea that the Prime Minister takes money to have a bit of a flash redesign of number 10, really? Is that news? Okay move on. And that's for the people that hear about it. And the thing that annoys me the most is you get the coverage of the coverage. You get the, the, the spin on the spin and you have people go, is it the story is no longer even the wallpaper? It's, is the wallpaper cutting through to the electorate? And I'm thinking to myself, the first story wasn't interesting. The second one certainly isn't. I really don't care if wallpaper is cutting through to the electorate or not. What the hell are you talking about? Like you say, we've got really high youth unemployment at the moment. We've got, uh, we've got a housing crisis. You know, we, we've got people that, you know, are, are really bruised psychologically, economically uh, from, from the last 12 months. And, and, and we're talking about whether or not wallpaper's cutting through to the red wall. And, and I'll finish with this, Michael. The media sort of establishment in London have been praying for these kinds of stories for five years. They've had to actually deal with proper politics. They've had to, they've had to actually leave London, Right. And they've had to actually engage with the fact that in this country, it's one person, one vote. They had to address Brexit. They've had to address, you know, potentially Scottish independence. They had to address COVID. They had to address the economic offer of Jeremy Corbyn. And these are actually big political questions. Climate change with XR and, you know, Greta, Greta Thunberg and all that stuff. They've had to address really big questions. What they all wanted to do was to go back to the SW1 inside baseball. He said, she said, I want to talk about wallpaper. You want to talk about somebody being somebody's best friend. And they did that and they shouldn't have done. Nobody cares. But this is what they've all been praying for. Because this is what they think is political journalism, right? And it's not. Most of the country doesn't care. But they are just so happy they no longer have to actually cover important stories of historical significance. They're chuffed. I don't think it's quite... I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I don't think it's quite fair to just say it's just about wallpaper. Because the issue here is obviously the relationship between business and politics. It's not, it's not just about wallpaper, is it? It's saying if you are an MP or a prime minister who's willing to accept money here, there and everywhere from businesses without reporting it, without declaring it, then that will affect your decision-making 
decision-making processes, as we sure. saw that it did so much during the COVID-19 pandemic when they gave out <laughs> contracts to people who'd given them a bit of money or who had their WhatsApp number. So I think to say it's just about wallpaper is is but not he, correct fundamentally. No, Michael, I think, but he did he did pay. Nobody's now saying that Boris Johnson didn't pay for this redecoration. He did pay. So you're going to have to explain this. Oh, no, he did pay, but actually originally somebody else paid and now he's paid. So, well, he's paid. What's the problem? This is silly because he only paid once difficult yeah. questions were asked about it. Yeah, well, we, we don't know that, but that's what it seems. Yeah, that's what it appears. I, I feel you can say that this isn't the most important story in the country about just completely buying Boris Johnson's explanation. I'm not buying it. it. Michael, remember, I'm saying it's an important thing. It, it shouldn't. And it, to be fair to Stummer, he didn't lead with it at PMQs. He led with the comment about the bodies piling up. But we, we're not talking about that story. We're talking about the wallpaper story. You know, and I think the yeah. body's piling up and how that relates to COVID. And like you say, the corruption thing around COVID and green sill, these are all hugely substantive stories. But I do feel like the media, they sort of, they all, they all want to report the same thing. And they've all clearly got it in for Carrie Simmons, clearly. And they all like the whole Dom Cummings versus Boris dynamic, because it's very SW1, very Westminster. And so this is a story that they love. And so all of a sudden, the rest of us go, this is a really important story. The wallpaper story is a really important story. But you do, a, you do it a disservice by calling it. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just think by no, calling it the wallpaper story, you do it a disservice because actually the story wallpaper. is Boris Johnson is willing to accept money without declaring it from business people who are quite likely to get contracts from the government in, in the future. So, I mean, that is an issue in terms of how you see your job. Do you see your job as just, one where you are it's able a story. to get personal gain and help your buddies? It's a story, but Michael, we're dealing... I mean, anybody who's watching this, who, who's been watching the Conservatives for the last year, knows that in terms of all the Tory stories with regards to COVID, this is like number 2025. Greensill was huge. Do you know who's the happiest man in Britain after the last week? David Cameron. David Cameron. He was implicated in... in you know, Greensill is facing criminal prosecution in Germany. This is really serious stuff. A former prime minister was, was, was found to be doing really dodgy stuff. Rishi Sunak as well is chuffed to bits right? Uh, you had people at the top of the civil service. We were talking about a huge investigation inquiry into the civil service, people wearing two hats, earning a wage both at the civil service at the same time with the conflict of interest, working for Greensill, like really unbelievable stories and actually of huge importance. And that's all gone to the, that's all gone to the side because we're talking about wallpaper. I think the happiest man right now is David Cameron, second is Boris Johnson. Well, I suppose maybe what this conversation is showing is, is why it was silly for Keir Starmer to go to John Lewis and look at wallpaper because I don't think this is just a wallpaper story. The Tories want you to think it's a wallpaper story. But again, I, I don't think it's the most um, important political story in the country right now. Um, let's end the section by very quickly um, looking at Westminster voting intention. We're not going to get too much into guessing who's going to perform well. You know, We'll see what happens. At the moment, YouGov have the Conservatives on 44%, Labour on 33%. That's down one the Lib Dems on 7%, which is up to the Greens on 7%, and the SMP um, on 4%, which is down 1%. Um, although, I mean, obviously, their percentage only matters in, in Scotland, which we'll be discussing in a moment. Reform UK on, on 3% there to, to end um, or, to, or to, to have completeness in our description of those data. Um, in terms of whether the public do care, um, there were some interesting, there was an interesting couple of paragraphs about this in the Times write-up of that YouGov survey. They write, 
The Tories' overall lead comes despite more than half of the respondents agreeing that the Tories are very sleazy and disreputable, and almost a third saying that they consider Johnson to be less honest than other politicians. Half of voters think that Johnson did say he would rather see bodies pile high than put England into a third lockdown, despite his strenuous denials, with a quarter believing him. Only a third of those polled said they believed that if he did make the comment, it would tell us something about how little he valued saving people. Half said it was probably his way of expressing his reluctance to implement another lockdown. Um, so you can see that people both think Boris Johnson is dishonest and sleazy, but are very, very willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, which is why, um, and I think Keir Starmer will be very disappointed with this, um, actually, according to YouGov, Boris Johnson's favourability ratings are staying fairly steady, while Keir Starmer's are declining. Um, so in the past week, um, that's what you can see. Boris Johnson now has has a, a higher personal rating than than Keir Starmer, who's plummeted despite all the scandals um, involving um, Boris Johnson and not Keir Starmer. Let's move on to Scotland, just because uh, I, I know we've got a brilliant guest waiting. The most interesting contest on the 6th of May and the one that will be most consequential are elections to the Scottish Parliament. The big story here is whether or not Nicola Sturgeon can win an absolute majority, which she says would serve as a mandate for planning for a second referendum on Scottish independence. Um, so will she get it? It looks like it will be a close run thing. And we can go to the latest projection from Britain Elects that came out today. They do those um, in conjunction with the new statesman. And that puts the SNP on 62 MSPs, just short of the 65 needed for an absolute majority. That poll also suggests that the Greens, who also back independence, could double their representation in Hollywood from 6 to 11. So obviously, even if the SNP don't get that absolute majority, there will be an absolute majority for an Indy Ref 2. I'm joined by Ross Greer, a member of the Scottish Parliament with the Scottish Greens. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Current polling suggests, in practical terms, the next government could be a lot like the last. You'll have an SNP minority government with the Greens sort of propping it up, essentially, voting through their budgets. I suppose potentially you could also join a formal coalition with them. My question for you, though, is at the moment you've got SNP government supported by the Greens. You're about to have probably SNP government supported by the Greens. Is a vote for the Greens a vote for the status quo? I mean, from our perspective, you just need to look at what we've been able to do with that position of influence over the last five years. And it's worth saying, yes, we've agreed, you know, budget deals with the SNP most notably, each one of the last five budgets. They do vote with the Conservatives in the Scottish Parliament just about as much as they vote with the Greens. So particularly on issues like housing, uh, the SNP and the Conservatives are always very keen to defend landlords, whereas you see the Greens and, and to an extent Labour standing up for tenants. What we've done over the last five years, though, with the budgets, we've been able to introduce stuff like uh, free school meals for all primary pupils. So that'll be coming in over the next year because that was our price of this year's budget. Free bus travel for everyone under the age of 22, about half a billion pounds back into our local government budgets um, and stuff like we, the Green Party rewrote the income tax system in Scotland. So income tax was devolved for the first time after the 2016 election. And one of our uh, prices, I think it was the 2018 budget, um, was that the income tax system be rewritten so the richest people, the highest earners, pay more and those on the lowest incomes actually got small tax cuts. So you, you've seen the influence that we've been able to have over the, the last five years. It's not been on every issue. On you know, on other issues, the, the government can count on other parties' support where they want to preserve the status quo. Um, where we've been able to really make a mark has been on issues where other parties, frankly, wouldn't wouldn't work with them. 
I mean, the controversy with the Greens' role, as far as I understand it, is voting for budgets which which put through quite severe cuts to local councils. So this is Labour Party research but reported by the Herald, which suggests that £937 million in cuts have been made to local government over the past eight years. Obviously, only four, four of those years um, you were supporting the government. Um, is there anything you think the Greens could have done differently? You know, c- could you have played a, a harder a harder bargain in trying to limit those cuts to local government? I think we definitely got better at negotiating uh, year by year. So you can see that the last couple of budgets where we got stuff like free bus travel for young people, free school meals, uh, direct cash payments for low-income families this year. So they'll be coming in June, August and December uh, because we put them into the budget. Yeah, we've got better at it than we were in in the first couple, but Labour will deliberately use longer periods of time because that's the period of time, you know, half of those budgets, the SNP was in majority and passed them themselves. What we've done over the last four years is essentially stop the bleeding. Local government was being hammered. For the last couple of years, it's not been. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that the Greens have reversed all the austerity that local government has suffered between 2010 and 2016, where we started holding the balance of power. But we put half a billion pounds back in, which in Scottish terms is is pretty significant. And it stopped the massive austerity that was happening up until that point. Yeah, we need far more fundamental change. I mean, we like the, the haggling that we do over a couple hundred million pounds every year doesn't fundamentally solve the problem of, of local government finance. Council tax rates in Scotland were last set in 1992. I wasn't born in 1992, so we have members of parliament who are fiddling around the edges of a local government tax system that is older than I am. Most people don't even pay the right rate of council tax. And trying to get not just the SNP, but Labour and others on board with that more fundamental reform, the, the really transformational stuff that the Greens want, that's that's been what's challenging. So we, we've done the best we can with the, the position of influence we had. I think for five or six MSPs, you know, we, we've punched above our weight. We're proud of what we've done. Would it have been different if it had been a green majority government? Of course it would have been. You know, These weren't green budgets. They were SNP budgets that we were able to really significantly influence. Compare and contrast that with Labour, whose strategy and budget negotiations was to try and force the SNP into a corner where they could only do a deal with the Tories and it would be a really bad budget and Labour could turn around and say, see, we told you they were just the tartan Tories all along. We we never wanted to cooperate with that kind of strategy because people suffer as a result of that. That those aren't good budgets for public services. They would have been, you know, even worse for our councils. So Labour's strategy was never to get a good budget. It was to, for political opportunism reasons, deliberately force the SNP to pass worse budgets for, for their own electoral advantage. There are some uncertainties when it comes to this election, but it looks pretty certain that there is going to be a majority for a second Indie Ref, um, a second referendum for Scottish independence after the elections on on the 6th of of May. Um, What's your position on what should happen next, how that should happen? I mean, we can presume Boris Johnson is in power in Westminster. He's not going to say, yeah, go on, have the referendum. Do you think they should go and do, uh, I suppose, an illegal referendum where you just organise it without the the, the support of, of, of the Westminster government? The kind of trite answer to this, I suppose, is that um, I, I don't want to live in exile in Belgium, and you just need to look at the the experience of our friends in Catalonia to see that that's that's not a path to independence. Um, that there are there are avenues that are available to us, though. But most interestingly, has been the the briefings that have come out of, of Downing Street and the Tories over the last couple of weeks. That instead of this hardline position of of opposition, you can never have a referendum, even if you voted for it. They're beginning to recognise that. That's actually just pushing more people towards the independence cause because it's validating our argument about the democratic deficit. So what the briefing now is, 
that they might try and bounce us into an early referendum and to try and have it really quickly. And they, they think the, the no side, the unionist side, believe that they would stand a better chance of winning if we've not had a chance to prepare our post-pandemic, our post-COVID argument for independence. So we're seeing a shift in their tactics, which I welcome because it's obviously to a slightly more democratic or a slightly less anti-democratic position. But we don't actually have any legal precedent on this in Scotland. So we, it's never been tested. The, the case for whether or not the Scottish Parliament actually has the power to hold a referendum, it's never been tested in court. So if we end up in that situation where we've won the pro-independence majority that it looks like we're going to, the Scottish Parliament has passed a resolution saying there should be a referendum. Um, if the UK government reject the, the Section 30 order that's required to, to do it in what would be constitutionally an, an unquestionably legitimate manner, if they reject that, we can go to court and test the, the case on whether or not the Scottish Parliament actually has the power to do this itself, because that's not settled and there's strong legal uh, opinion on both sides of that particular debate. So we've got legal avenues that are available to us, though obviously that wouldn't be the, the preferred path. We, we would prefer that the other side simply recognise the democratic legitimacy of, of the mandate we'll, we'll win. What about independence in, in general, the arguments for it, and especially, I suppose, the position of the Greens? Because as far as I understand it, what you guys want is to leave the UK and immediately join the EU, as well as there being a lot of currency issues, which were exactly the same issues that you know arose I mean, in the ref one in, in 2014. You now have this massive issue of the border. We've seen what happened in, in Northern Ireland. It was very difficult. They also had the Good Friday Agreement. So there was a necessity for both sides to to have an arrangement whereby you could have a bit of a soft border on the island of Ireland. How, if an independent Scotland joins the EU and the rest of the UK still has a fairly hard Brexit situation with, with the European Union, are you not going to have a hard border between England and, and Scotland where people have to you know, have checks before they can can cross that border, or at least goods will have to have checks before they can cross that border. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not going to stand here and pretend that there's a, a straightforward answer to that. But we would also we wouldn't claim that uh, an independent Scotland would be you know joining the the EU instantaneously. That that's a process. Now we would be better placed than most countries that start the accession process for joining because at the moment, obviously, we. Uh, we abide by most of the the acquis because we until very recently were bound by them as part of a, a member state. The, the, dis the discussion around that is in a totally different place to what it was in 2014 and obviously where we've been uh, gradually moving to since, since 2016. It would be in absolutely no one's interest to have a hard border between Scotland and England. It is notably different to Northern Ireland. So I sit on one of the bodies that monitors the, the Good Friday Agreement. Obviously, we're in wildly different places. For, for us, it, it's not a conflict-related situation, but it would be incredibly bad economics, obviously. Uh, to be setting up a, a hard border. The the process by which Scotland can, can move back in towards the European Union and uh, the process by which we become independent and avoid a hard border, they're, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, no one is suggesting that the common travel area uh, would end, for example. Um, and we're not suggesting that overnight these issues uh, are, are, are easy to solve. But what we're what we're asking for here is is the opportunity to have that debate. So we want an opportunity. We've not set out our detailed prospectus for how independence would look like on day one because we've not yet won the the mandate to have that referendum. That's what this election is all about. And we recognise the plans that were there in twenty fourteen. They they don't apply anymore to quite a significant extent on both sides. Both sides' arguments have completely changed since twenty fourteen. What we as a country deserve is the opportunity to have this debate and to thrash out exactly how that would work. And for those of us who are 
pro-EU and, and believe Scotland's future should be should be in the European Union. That requires a different case to the one that existed in, in 2014. And we need we need the time, the opportunity to actually build up and, and develop that case. What we're trying to do between now and Thursday is the, the pre-debate, the pre-argument, the, the debate about whether or not we should even have this debate. Should Scotland have another opportunity at self-determination? And you know, clearly it looks like we're heading towards a majority for that, at least. Once you get to what independence looks like, that's when there are much, much sharper divisions because the Greens, you know, as a party of the radical left, we want something quite fundamentally different from the SNP. So it's not just that we want something different from what our, our friends in the unionist side would argue for. Our vision of independence is of complete social and economic transformation. It, the SNP's, I would argue, is you know the status quo in Edinburgh but, uh, rather than London. Those those debates are debates that we can only have if we are having a ref having a referendum and then actually become independent. At the moment, it's all kind of theoretical and academic. We're, all, all we're asking for is the opportunity to actually have that argument, have that debate about self-determination. Well, for purely selfish reasons, I would like there to be a second indie referendum so you can come back on and we can hash it out when it comes to borders and currencies and all those incredibly interesting issues. Um, Ross Greer, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. Thanks, Michael. On to our next story. Jon Snow, the host of Channel 4 News for the past 32 years, this week announced he would be retiring from the show at the end of this year. Now, announcing his departure, Channel 4 put out this collection of clips from his time at the organisation. Mr President, we're live on British television news now. Dominate the people of England. We've been pinned down by incoming Iranian fire. What has happened to these people will happen to you. The investigation into what went wrong has an added urgency. Hello, good evening. An extraordinary atmosphere. Welcome to ITN's Election 92. What a night. Apartheid committed so many crimes. Let bygones be bygones. You really feel something here that it's very difficult to describe. You do feel that people died here. The answer to that question is no. We it don't know. The answer to that question Excuse is me. we do not it's know. I'm here in Haiti after the shattering earthquake that killed so many. How far are you going? I see. Yeah, we're I'll keep going. <laughs> <Stop. laughs> Geriatrics, people with paralysis. What was the point of bombing the El Wafa hospital, for goodness sake? streaming up onto the freeway from the two most populous districts in New Orleans. It's eight o'clock and the night commuters are arriving at the Chur Hospital in Gulu, not one of whom has ever known a dead at home. Totally random, I already speaks it, innit? One form of the English language. Very lovely to meet you, James. You know nothing. <laughs> you bastard. Differences in the way that skunk and hash affect brain activity. This was aggressive film. At times, that was a slightly saccharine video, but he's clearly had a, quite an extraordinary career. Also quite an interesting guy. I only learned today that in 1970, Jon Snow was expelled from Liverpool University for taking part in an occupation protesting connections between the university and the apartheid regime in South Africa. He did go on to accept an honorary degree at the university, but used his speech to call the previous uni bosses monsters and loonies. So he's, he's a guy that cares. That's that's what's been coming out from from social media um, over the over the past twenty four hours on learning the news. Um, but what is Jon Snow like to work with? 
Um, earlier today, I spoke with Paul Mason, who worked as culture editor and then economics editor at Channel 4 News between 2013 and 2016. I started by asking Paul how Jon Snow compared to other anchors he's worked alongside over the years. The importance of of what he did and some of those viral videos, I mean, I remember one really clearly was the Gaza video. Even now, people walk up to me in the street because of a video I made outside RBS at the height of the world financial crisis. And I was just going crazy because I was sick of being harassed by security guards outside banks that had gone bust. And I kept saying to them, if only you would just turn around and look inside the bank, you'll find some criminals. The reason I did that and the reason Jon Snow did the Gaza video is we were actually told, so Ofcom, the regulator, was saying to TV programs, you're losing connection with your audience, you've got no emotional connection, you need to sound like you care. So Snow booked somehow the Channel 4 studio and did a YouTube-only video in support of the Gaza appeal while the Gaza war was going on. Both my experiment and his experiment, his was bigger, uh, in trying to be emotionally connected, backfired. And the whole ton of bricks, uh, that's the polite word for it, came down on Channel 4 uh, because of that video, because Snow had actually said, look, I care about the, the child victims. Snow and, and others like him are part of the elite. They are absolutely part of the you know the upper 2% of, the, of British society. But they actually care. They actually care about the victims of capitalism, and war and wanted to show it. They were no longer actually satisfied, just as I wasn't, with simply saying, on the one hand, on the other, so many dead people, we name them and talk about their children. If they're from one side, we treat them as faceless nothings if they're from another side. I know because I work with them that Jon Snow really wanted to break free of that type of journalism, which is what we get from the BBC most of the time. Every morning, you have a, a meeting at nine o'clock and it's an intense meeting you know, at 9 a.m. And everybody's there sitting there. They've all got off their bikes. They're all sweating. They're all ready to go. And you want to discuss the news, what we're going to do, what we're going to do. And everybody has a go at each other. It's a tense meeting. Snow walked in with a homeless young man um, who he'd found on the street uh, outside. And he said, I'm the chair of a homeless charity. And what am I supposed to do? Leave, leave this guy outside. And so several people who should have been then you know, doing the kind of macho kind of news meeting. Had to put down what they were doing and find this young guy a place to live. I don't think I would have done that. I don't think most people would have done that. But I, th I think he had the kind of social footprint and level of conscience where he would do something like that. And I think that, you know, uh, that's what, you know, it's that attitude, isn't it? It's that, you know, I'm not going to swear on Navarra, but it's up yours attitude that so many journalists don't have anymore. And um, Paul Mason was talking about some of the viral videos of, of Jon Snow really speaking like he he cares. Um, he mentioned a, a video about Gaza. I really recommend you look that up on, on YouTube. Actually, very, very powerful. He's talking um, about the horrific effects of, of the Israeli invasion of, of, of Gaza back in, in 2014. Um, another clip um, of him, which has gone viral um, since this news was announced, was him talking about another issue which was clearly close to his heart, which was the fire at Grenfell. Let, let's take a look at this, this clip from a, from a lecture he gave. I'm still haunted too by my own link with what happened at Grenfell Tower. On the 20th of April this year, I was involved with Bill Gates in judging a school's debate, a competition in London. 
It was the final of a countrywide championship organized by the charity DebateMate. That's an organization that does fantastic work democratizing that skill so often associated with the elite, public speaking. I was there to judge the best floor speech. I had little difficulty in deciding. The winner, Ferdows Kedir, remarkably poised hijab-wearing 12-year-old from West London. She was confident. She used language beautifully. Bill Gates grasped her hand and gave her the award. On the 19th of June, a mere two months later, reporting from Grenfell, I spotted a picture of Ferdows on a missing poster. She and her entire family of five are believed to have been incinerated together on the 22nd floor of Grenfell Tower. Two weeks ago, it was confirmed that remnants of Ferdows and her father had indeed been found in their flat and that their identities had been confirmed using DNA. Ferdows had been described as the most intelligent, wise, eloquent girl. I was fortunate to witness that firsthand and since then I often think, what might have she become? What were her life chances once she'd been picked out in this way? Could she have prevailed over the fractures in our society and succeeded? Britain is not alone in this. Our organic links with our own society are badly broken, in part because the echelons from which our media is drawn do not, for the most part, fully reflect the population amongst whom we live and to whom we seek to transmit information and ideas. Grenfell speaks to us all about our own lack of diversity and capacity to reach into the swathes of Western society with whom we have no connection. Like my fellow journalists, I have spent many hours around Grenfell. I've come to know a number of the survivors, and I speak to them regularly by phone or email. So casually written off as nameless migrants, scroungers, illegals, and the rest. Actually, and it should be no shock to us, the tower was full of talent, not least the wonderful and talented Khadija Sayyid, who died with her mother, on the verge of a major breakthrough as an artist. Or community leaders like Eddie Dufan, who survived the inferno, but who wrote that warning blog on October the 20th, 2016. We, the media, report the lack of diversity in other walks of life, but our own record is nothing like good enough. A really moving speech there. Actually, some of the themes that, that Paul Mason raised there, I think, coming through, especially this idea about, you know, diversity, the media needing to understand what's going on in the real world. I think the idea of, you know, him seeing a homeless person outside of Channel 4 News and saying, I, I need to bring them in and you can sort out housing to them, to his team. You know, I, I said to Paul, actually, after that, you know, if Laura Koonsberg had to sort out someone who was struggling with their benefits every year, she'd probably have a much better understanding of, of, of politics than she does just from reading WhatsApp messages from, from the various elites in Westminster. Um, Aaron, you mentioned before that uh, political journalists tend to be too obsessed and um, with the he sheds and the she sheds um, of Westminster when Jon Snow leaves Channel 4 News at the end of the year. Will we be in an even more, um, I suppose, worse situation when it comes to ob obsessions with Westminster bubble? Is he, is he one of the few news anchors who's able to break out of it? Him leaving the media is a huge is a huge moment, actually, Michael, uh, particularly broadcast media, because, of course, people are doing interesting, innovative, progressive stuff outside of legacy media, but actually in, in print and broadcast, you know, good people, a few and far between. And I think for me, what Jon Snow embodies are two sort of core traits, which have kind of 
have kind of disappeared from the British establishment. Um, and, and Paul was very right to say, look, this is not, he was not an anti-establishment figure. This type, actually, you, you see them quite frequently in, in, in sort of British society over the last hundred years in the democratic era. Firstly, he was a sort of, he believed in being a responsible liberal patrician. He believed that, you know, he had responsibilities to society and he believed that there were, there were things that brought us together and he believed in something, right? He believed in something. Um, he believed in things beyond just the market mechanism, beyond profit, beyond money, beyond opportunism. He, and he believed in the truth as a journalist. And of course, all journalists will say that, but I think his, his record, like you say, probably, I think, stands a bit taller than, than some others. Then secondly, I think he believed in his profession. I think he believed in the importance of journalism as a public service. You can't have democracy without an informed, uh, without an informed general public. And that requires objective, at best, journalism. Uh, that requires those people being well informed. And you can't merely have journalism as, uh, as an outgrowth of lobbying, political representation, public relations. You, you have to have something independent of that. And the reality is, Michael, there are very few journalists that still believe that. Extraordinarily few people. I don't think Robert Peston believes it. I don't think Laura Koonsberg believes it. Uh, I don't think people at the top, and of course there are many people at the bottom of, of the media who, who do think that, but people at the top, and Jon Snow was one of those, generally don't don't think that. And uh, and that's why his loss is going to be a real is going to be a real hit because he he believed in an idea of public service. He idea he, he believed in you know journalists being an integral feature to a democratic society. And my goodness, compare that speech he just gave Michael to the fact that Andrew Marr launched his novel in Number Ten Downing Street. This is somebody who who viewed themselves as as relating to to society in a profoundly different way to a Laura Koonsberg or, or an Andrew Marr. You know, he's been on people's yeah, TV screens yeah. pretty much every day for decades, and that, that's gone. That, and that is a loss, and it's important to say that. Yeah. He started hosting at the year I was born. Um, if you're enjoying the video, do hit the like button. The next story is kind of related. The Greensill scandal has shone a light on the revolving door that exists between politics and big business with powerful individuals, including ex-prime ministers, moving seamlessly between making public policy decisions and then lobbying for, for corporations which shape those decisions. Um, the, the relationship damages government not only because well-paid ex-politicians mobilise their connections, but also because when politicians are still in office, they have an incentive to be soft on those corporations who might employ them Afterwards, the whole thing, as we've seen with David Cameron and the Greensill scandal, it stinks. But the revolving door between lobbyists and politicians is not the only one at the heart of the British establishment. That's because there's another revolving door which receives less scrutiny from the media because it involves the media. It involves journalists themselves. And we have a couple of examples of this just from this week. Now, the first is Alistair Campbell. You'll have heard of him, former spin doctor to Tony Blair and before that political editor at The Mirror. Um, Campbell is, of course, most famous for his key role in selling the disastrous war in Iraq to the British public. Um, and Campbell um, has now bagged a new gig as guest host of Good Morning Britain. For now, it's only for a week. I think they're probably testing him out. He said, for what it's worth, he doesn't want to be the next Piers Morgan. Um, however, he did speak in, in fairly glowing terms about Piers Morgan's role at the show, although um, I suppose 
complimenting him for for one aspect of journalism that we we have as well, which is he can be quite good at holding politicians to account. So of Piers Morgan, Alistair Campbell wrote, one of the most important elements of our democracy is that ministers and their shadows should be subject to scrutiny and questioning. And I thought it was self-defeating for the government to have their long boycott of certain programmes, including Good Morning Britain. Ministers should never fear robust questioning, but I also know how much pe- how much most people hate it when things descend into squabbling and shouting. And though I may have strong views, I also think one of the worst things about the nature of our debate, exacerbated by social media, is that we don't want to engage properly with people who have different views. Another one of those people talking about, oh, civility is so important in politics when you're someone who lied to go into an illegal war. Anyway, straight from a disgraced role in number 10 Downing Street to one of the most prominent positions on our TV screens. Make of that what you will. Our second example of this revolving door concerns Robbie Gibb. Um, Robbie Gibb, slightly less famous than Alistair Campbell, but potentially just as influential. He is the brother of a Tory minister for a start. That's not the main part of the story, though, surprisingly. Um, He also had a 25-year career at the BBC when he was head of the corporation's political programming until 2017. Now, following the general election that year, he became Theresa May's director of communications at Downing Street. So straight from the BBC to Director of Communications at Downing Street, interesting, the same job that Alistair Campbell had. And now, straight back to the BBC. Yeah, you can, you can just do it like BBC, number 10, BBC. That's what's happened here because he's been announced um, as taking up a three-year paid role as England representative on the BBC board. Now, the BBC board, incredibly powerful, influential organization and it's made up of 14 people five of whom are appointed by the government the other nine are co-opted by the board's existing members gib um, is one of the government appointees now that board has responsibilities including setting the strategic direction of the corporation the creative remit for its output and its budget incredibly important as you'd expect a board to be and now there's been a, a fair amount of analysis about this as i say journalists don't tend to write about the revolving door between government and and media, or at least not suggest it might be problematic because lots of them are thinking, maybe I'll go and do that in in a moment anyway. I mean, they don't want to seem hypocritical. But there was some interesting analysis of this in the BBC. Um, So this was from their media editor, Amal Rajan, writing up the story and an analysis of it. He writes, while critical, Sir Robbie has been consistently supportive of a reformed BBC, arguing publicly and privately that it is a national jewel that urgently needs to address its disconnect with conservative and non-metropolitan audiences. Interestingly, he backs the principle of universality behind the licence fee, even if the practicalities of how the fee operates may need to evolve. Now, this is the key bit. His appointment clearly strengthens the BBC's links, not just with Westminster, but with the Conservative Party specifically. It goes on earlier this year, Richard Sharp replaced Sir David Clementi as the BBC's chairman. Sharp, a former banker, investor and philanthropist, is close to Rishi Sunak, the chancellor who he worked with during the pandemic. Sunak previously worked with Sharp at Goldman Sachs. So there you have it in, you know, in black and white. I mean, he's supposed to be objective, so he can't say this is an outrage. But you've got the chairman of the BBC very close to Rishi Sunak, they've just appointed someone else to the BBC, to the Chet, to the to the board, who is even closer with the Conservative Party, worked for them in, in one of the most jo- important jobs in the Conservative Party, straight back into the BBC. The board, you know, as it happens, also kind of oversees impartiality. Part of his job will be to say, oh, that seems a bit biased. You were literally the chief advisor to Theresa May. 
Aaron, I want to bring you in on this, on both the 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 Alistair Campbell gig and the Robbie Gibb gig. Robbie Gibb's new job is potentially more outrageous, the idea that you can just go straight from the BBC, Westminster, BBC. You know, he could presumably after this go and work for another Tory prime minister and just keep doing this flip-flopping between the two. Yeah, no, I think there's two deeply separate stories here, right? Although, of course, it's the same sort of big one, which is, yeah, the, the revolving door. Alistair Campbell, though, I think in many ways, Michael, is actually is much worse because, you know, what we're being told right now by the Labour leadership, by well, a bunch of people, um, including the Conservatives, they are saying that, yes, what should happen is that there should be consequences for doing bad things when you're in public life. There should be consequences for that. Alistair Campbell was in an operation at Downing Street working for Tony Blair, which lied to the cabinet. Parliament and the country about entering an illegal war with absolutely no evidence or basis to do so. None at all. None at all. There were several people around Blair who, like I say, I'll happily say this, actively lied and deceived and misrepresented the situation to their colleagues in the cabinet, to their own party, and to the public. And what are the consequences of that? You know, you might think that Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson are terrible people. Believe me, they have done nothing compared to that. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. They lied to start this war, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. It destabilized the Middle East probably for another 50, 60, 70 years. Who knows? Which gave, you know, uh, which gave the conditions which allowed for the rise of ISIS. And this man, the consequences he's facing uh, is hosting a morning chat show on ITV. Where are the consequences? People say there should be consequences for Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. Where are the consequences for Alistair Campbell? There are no consequences. And I think, again, it, we were talking about Jon Snow a second ago, Michael. It goes back to this idea that there is no ethos of public service or duty or responsibility or actually consequences. I've done something bad. I should face the consequences. You know, the Blairites love to talk about law and order. And if you're going to have rights, you should also have responsibilities. What were their responsibilities? You're given so much power. British soldiers have lost their lives, private contractors, Iraqi citizens, and over the course of 20 years, what, 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 what consequences are, are there for that, for what you did? There are none. To this day, they won't apologize for it. They won't even apologize for it, Michael. Almost two decades later, they won't even apologize for it. So I find it remarkable, this man who, who, who saw his entire, not his job, his entire being, as media management, as seeing the media effectively as an outgrowth of political communications, that was his job, and he he perfected it more than anyone else, he's now talking about, oh, I'm going to hold politicians accountable. Bullshit. Bullshit. He's the absolute worst person who should have that job. And what's more, Michael, I find it just from a commercial perspective, very strange. I mean, the, the, he's an old guy. He's like 60. You know, I mean, maybe, and this is what I find interesting is maybe broadcasters now just given up on young young people. When I say young, I mean like under 45s. I think they've just given up. You know, what person, I thought they could have gone for a younger person here. And like you said, it's just a trial. Get a really exciting, when I say young, I mean like a 40-year-old, Michael. I don't mean like somebody who's who 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 who, who is like a, a teenager or a student. So on that level, it's interesting. But I just think, my God, Alistair Campbell at GMB hosting it embodies the moral degradation of British public life and politics and the media. It's, it's, it's 
so corroded morally, it's almost unbelievable. The Robbie Gibb thing is slightly different in so much as the BBC, it, it holds itself up to such high service where public service journalism, and like you say, this guy, he's done it once, maybe he'll do it again. Maybe we're just, it's like this Polybian cycle of Robbie Gibb, politics, media, politics, media, politics, media, maybe that's what we'll do. He's got, he's got his brother's a Tory MP, I mean, and there's no, again, there's no consequences. And so even BBC, which is meant to embody all the highest, you know, probity and public life and high standards and professionalism and world class, it's all bullshit. It's all crap that the establishment in this country tell themselves. Where's the probity? At least, at least give it a few years, right? At least give it five years. I can't even do that. Breaks the pay. I don't know. Is the paycheck too good? Is the status? Is he missed the status? Does he miss being at the center of attention? Probably. Well, what's striking about it, I find, is, and this goes back to the whole Boris Johnson's flat refurb thing, is that when it comes to this issue, Laura Koonsberg does, you know, at least go on the television and say the reason this matters is because if Boris Johnson is paid this money by this business person, then when he's making decisions, he might take that into account, right? She gives this very basic explanation as to why this would be a problem. I've never heard her, or to be honest, any political journalist saying, the reason it's a problem for people to go from working in a job where they're supposed to hold the government to account to then immediately working for those same politicians is we might think that means they go soft on those politicians. And the reason we think it's a problem to have political editors of the BBC working as director of communication is that then they'll be friends with precisely the people who are supposed to hold that person to account. So you end up with this very cosy in-club where no one really has an adversarial relationship with each other because they're all essentially colleagues. You know, I've never heard that spelled out like that. And Michael, it's the worst of all worlds because Britain, you know, London has such a huge role in our national conversation. We have a two-party system. So the, the the centralizing sort of powers here, you know, ultimately it means that several hundred people in this country define what matters and what doesn't in terms of the media conversation. Robbie Gibbs, one of them. You know, maybe at a, a push a thousand. You know, that is not, this is a country of 68 million. It's the fifth, sixth largest economy in the world. That's not how things are meant to function. Right. And, and this is a major, a major, 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 major problem. And again, people, everybody knows this. It's one of those, you know, it makes, you know, it, it, that's why it's one of those moments where you feel like we're in the kind of 1980s Soviet Union. Everybody knows you're not meant to do this. Everybody knows this isn't really public service journalism. Everybody knows you don't really have any sense of, of, of ethos of public service, of obligation. This is just basically about looking out for number one and your sort of your 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 political preferences and party political kind of factions, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows that's what this is about. Nobody says it, you know, and they dress it up in all this kind of, you know, regal language and professionalism and diligence. And his, uh, one, one of the very few people in British media that was like that was John Snow. Robbie Gibb, my God, the polar opposite. And the fact that it's not even, they've not even tried to conceal it, Michael. It's just so brazen. It's almost like they want to wind people up. You know, Robbie's like, put it, I'm going to apply for this, put it out there. Let's see, let's see this blow up on Twitter. Yeah, fuck them. Excuse my French, but you know, that's, that's, that's all I can think. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's almost like they're mocking us. And I'm not saying this is YouTube outrage. I mean, it does feel like they're mocking us. Right? Alistair, Alistair Campbell on, 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 on Good Morning Britain. And then, Robbie Gibbs allowed to go back to the BBC. Come on. Try some new people. Mm. Try some people who aren't only interested in filling their own pockets and looking out for their own side, their own political football team. Try that. Who knows? We might, you know, we might not have 15 years of flatlining wages and falling home ownership and rising homelessness and people living in tents on on uh, on roundabouts. Maybe something, something might change. Very well put. I do think they're taking the piss of us. 
Um, let's end there. Aaron, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank My you pleasure. everyone for watching and for your super chats and for your comments and for your tweets. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.